Number 348 has been asked that we mark that, and we'll use that a bit later in the service tonight. As always, what a delight it is and a joy and a privilege we each have tonight to assemble and to gather that things with you and me are as well as they are, that permits us the opportunity and the disposition to come together on an occasion like this one. As our mind rushes to those who are ill and sick and other issues and difficulties that have hindered them from being here, how thankful we can be that such is not true with us tonight. And we're always thankful for visitors and when they always come our way. And we hope that our service is encouraging, uplifting, and edifying, that we each might be drawn closer and nearer to a more perfect appreciation of our wonderful Heavenly Father. For quite some time now, for about ten lessons, we have been looking at the book of Job on, Sunday, on the Sunday evening lessons. And tonight, in fact, we come to the ninth installment of that series in which we consider chapters 38 and 39 of the book of Job. As we've studied and been reminded of some of the features and matters found in the book of Job, we've each been challenged to appreciate. Perhaps that New Testament reference in James 5 verse 11, you remember the patience of Job. Here was a man so afflicted, so oppressed in terms of the loss of the matters in his life. And yet, these friends who came his way thought that they had the answer and they encouraged him to repent of the iniquities that had brought these matters upon him. And all the while, Job plainly stated to them he was not of the disposition that they felt he was. However, he did have a desire to converse with God. And that brings us really to the scene of the events that we'll take up tonight in chapters 38 and 39. As the friends, through these discourses and these cycles of speeches, their names were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And one by one, they would address Job, and Job would reply. And now we've come to Elihu in chapters 32 to 37. Elihu was a bit upset that they had failed to convince Job of the error of his way. And he was also upset with Job, for Job pictured himself as self-righteous. And we noted last Sunday evening that as the curtain closes on chapter 37, it brings us to tonight's lesson, chapter 38. Job does not reply to Elihu per se. Rather, in chapter 38, Harold read this for us earlier, but perhaps it would be worthwhile to note it again. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. It was now Jehovah's turn. After Zophar, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Job had had their opportunities to speak, to address, to consider, now it was the prerogative of the God of heaven. And did you note with me the rather direct language that he used with respect to Job? Job, stand up straight like a man. I've got some issues now to ask of you. God didn't immediately address the other three friends. He would do that a bit later. But for now, he had an issue and he needed to address Job and that he did rather directly. I'd invite you to notice some of the thoughts that occur on the next slide. As we notice some of these speeches and some of these features about these opening remarks in chapter 38. You'll notice with me that there were certainly some things amiss in what Job's friends had claimed. In fact, in chapter 42, verses 6 and 7, God expressly said, 
of the three friends, they had not spoken the thing of Job that was right. So we are not left to doubt. There were some things in their mind, some matters in their accusations of Job that were not only improper, they were completely wrong. But as we turn our attention to Job, it's also true that we must admit that although Job had not been guilty of the things his friends accused him of, it was nonetheless true he didn't have as full an appreciation and as complete a recognition of the grandeur, greatness, and majesty of God that he ought to have. We notice that because several times in the book he said, If only I could converse with God, but He won't hear me, and He will not reply. Job's God was too little. And here was Jehovah God about to address Job and clear up this degree of misunderstanding his mind. God needed to be more thoroughly understood by Job than he was. And so he says, Job, gird up your loins like a man. I have some questions for you. Job, you need to be prepared for I have some issues that I want to ask of you and I want you to answer if you can. And with that, beginning in verse number 4 of Job chapter 38, there is in fact what I have listed on that screen as one question after another in which Jehovah peppers Job with questions, questions that are magnificent, questions that are hard, questions that in fact stretch one's mind to fathom the fullness and the intensity of it. Sometimes today I might confess that teachers might hand their youngsters a pretty hard test in a class sometimes. There is no test that has ever been given on earth that will match in thoroughness, in greatness, in intensity, the kind of test that God is now about to give Job. Job, gird up thy loins like a man. I will demand of thee and answer thou me. You'll notice beginning in verse number 4, the questions begin. One after another almost to the point of leading one to understand the fullness and the greatness of that which was the lesson that God intended Job to learn. It is with that in mind we come near the bottom of that slide and maybe a valiant lesson would be worthwhile for us to note even now. What was God's point in asking all of these myriad of hard questions? Couldn't He have just answered maybe a few of them and wouldn't that have been sufficient? Or couldn't God have made note of His grandeur in some definitive statement? Why did He choose to ask the questions that He did? At least in my study, it would seem to me that this is one of the answers. I think we can conclude that at the bottom. Nobody on earth then or today has any right to question the God of heaven unless that person has the answer to the nature of these questions in their fullness, in their correctness, and in the absolute character of what is involved in them. It would seem to me that must have been at least a part of God's point. Again, he said, Job, answer these questions. And with them, let's notice what some of them were. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 38. I've tried to divide the questions, at least for our consideration, into a couple of parts. First of all, there are some of the questions that involve the inanimate world around us. 
That is to say, the nature of planet Earth, the character of the oceans, the greatness of the stars and the constellations in the heavens. There are many of the questions that involve those matters. And so I've listed them first. Immediately, verse 4, listen to how God begins this series of questions. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? And immediately God says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. What is it that maintains the earth in her orb such that she doesn't collapse, such that she remains sturdy and stable? Job, tell me if you know. Job, what about the nature and character of those matters that relate to and are a part of the nature of the support of planet earth? Job, do you know? You'll notice that Job didn't give any immediate reply. Could it be that Job didn't have the answers? As you give thought to these initial questions that God asked Job, you'll notice that God was only warming himself up, if you please. I've listed some more things, for after all, in verse number 7, a rather curious statement is made. It says, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, and immediately reference is made to the singing of the stars, Frankly, for millennia, scientists no doubt looked upon that almost hilariously. The stars in song, how can that be? And yet within the last century or so, it has now been understood that among the wave output, the characteristics not only of light but also of sound, the stars actually do sing. God was right all along, wasn't He? You'll notice beginning in verse number 8, references made to the oceans and the seas of the planet the greatness, and the fact that there are bounds associated with their existence. Who shut up, verse 8, the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? There was a time in the great flood of Noah's day when water inundated this planet. And we all remember that from Psalm 104, when God, if you please, pressed and formed the seas the way He did, He gave it boundaries, He gave it limitations, and God in its majesty now asked Job, what about when I did that? Can you and I not be appreciative of the fact that on this earth there is a great deal of water, but it seems to have its place, and it seems to have its bounds. And God here testified, Job, that is a critical part of the nature of the planet. Do you know how that happens? In verse number 9, God says, When I made the cloud, the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it. Those clouds that you and I have the privilege of witnessing on so many occasions, they often are beautiful, aren't they? As they stream across the sky, they should be a testimony to the fact of hear what God said to Job, God, I, I made them. I fashioned them. They carry not only the moisture and the necessary matters incumbent for earth, the cycle of them is that which I have made, God said. Isn't it a fascinating thing even beyond all of that? That God deals rather deeply 
and profoundly into some matters that were not appreciated for at least 2,000 years from the time that he asked these questions of Job. Science, I suppose, has been in search of the answer to many of these questions. I would ask you to notice, interestingly, especially verses 19 and following for right now, where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? That thou shouldest take it to the bound thereof, and that thou shouldest know the path of the house thereof. And then a bit later in the chapter, verse number 24, By what way is the light parted, which scattereth the east wind upon the earth? God, in such a brief fashion, there made reference to the fact there is a way of light, but there is a place of darkness. The two words are different. Science didn't understand that, at least until the days of Isaac Newton and beyond. And as far as this issue of the parting of light, we now know you can take a prism and separate light into its component colors. Job didn't understand that, but God did. Isn't it a majesty and a great thing for us to see how that the truths of science are in agreement to the proclamations of truth in the Bible? When you think about the earlier portions of this chapter, we would be remiss not to mention a bit about verse 17. Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Can you just hear God saying, Job, if you're so wise, tell me what happens after the time of death. What happens beyond the grave? Job, do you know? We can only imagine the silence of Job. And we can only imagine how silent we would have been in the identical situation of him. One question after another has been asked. My expectation is Job felt about that tall after hearing questions like this. After having thought perhaps he at least was on par to dialogue with God, to have thought that maybe he was ready to have a conversation with God, and then for God to say, Job, tell me about the structure of earth. Tell me about the parting of light. Tell me about death, Job, if you know. Clearly, Job didn't know. And today, even with the investigations and discoveries of science, we still don't know all the answers to these questions. We have come two millennia, and we still don't know all the answers. Doesn't it remind us of how great our God is? But after all, there was more. We aren't done with God's questions yet. You'll notice on the slide, a rather penetrating set of questions also was asked beginning in verse number 28. Let's just notice a few of them. Hath the rain a father, or who hath begotten the drops of dew? Job, tell me who makes the rain. How do those droplets form the way that they do? Why doesn't it come down in sheets? Have you and I ever wondered about that? God asked that question of Job. Verse 29. Out of whose womb came the ice and the hoary frost of heaven? Who hath gendered it? Job, who makes the frost? And what about the hail and the dew when it comes? How does that come about? Can you tell me? There are students who study for years in meteorology. They could probably lecture to you and me for a few hours on some of the details. They still don't have all the fullness of those answers. But let's notice further. Verse 31, Canst thou bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season, or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Job, you see those constellations in the sky? 
Orion, the Pleiades, the bear? Can you direct them? Can you, in fact, detail the fullness of their motion and explain to me how that works? You and I today still stand in amazement. When we look up into a clear night sky, aren't all of us somewhat mesmerized by the Little Dipper and the Big Dipper and all the host of the constellations? There are multitudes of stars out there, and our God made every one of them. They're all different. They're all unique. They're all a testimony to His greatness. I wonder by now what was Job thinking? What was he internally considering? Notice with me even further, verse 34. Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds, that abundance of waters may cover thee? Job, can you make it rain? Job, can you bring rain on your command? Scientists have tried now for well over a century to bring rain on command, and we still can't do it. Our God is in thorough control of the systems of the weather. It shall rain when He says it will, and it'll be dry when He says it won't. Job was asked, Job, can you make it rain? Notice beyond that in verse 35, Canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, Here we are. Job, can you make it lighten? Can you bring a thunderstorm to soothe and refresh the earth beneath? Job, can you make it lighten that way? And today we have come to understand in science, haven't we, that lightning really does a refreshing work for the earth. The characteristic of the nitrogen that's formed in the atmosphere does polarize and cleanse the atmosphere. And also it discharges, of course, the earth. All the while, doesn't it remind us our God's in control of that system? And it is such that Job was reminded, Job, can you do that? As we close the chapter, might we say this in verse 37, When the dust groweth into hardness, and the clods cleave fast together. I know that we in this part of the world are very familiar with a clod. Perhaps Dad told you and me more than once to go in there and chop out the clods and break them up so that we can have a good garden later in the year. Where do the clods come from? How is it that soil, once so nicely smooth, can find its way to make clods later in the season? We notice here, Job was asked, Job, how does it come about that way? Doesn't it remind us that even something as simple as the occurrence and existence of a clod can remind us that there is a process behind it and our God is in charge of it. Isn't it wonderful we serve a loving God who has orchestrated His universe so finely, so thoroughly, and yet so completely? To this point, we have looked at so many of the inanimate things and the questions that God asked Job. And at the very bottom of that slide, I couldn't resist just asking, isn't it true that this is a rather humbling set of questions? I mentioned before, I suspect Job felt about that tall, and I believe I would have probably felt even smaller. However, chapter 39 is going to open and more questions are coming is we give thought to the animate ones. That is to say, those that relate to life in one form or another. These two begin near the close of chapter 38. Might I invite you to notice with me verses 39 and 40 of chapter 38. Wilt thou hunt the prey for the lion, or feel the appetite of the young lion, when they couch in their dens and abide in the covert to lie in wait? 
Who provideth for the raven his food? When the young ones cry unto God, they wonder for lack of meat. Job, as far as the animal kingdom, who provides their meat? Who provides the necessary sustenance and food? Job, can you do that? And almost immediately as one thinks of the vastness of the animal kingdom and the provision of the food for them daily, Job was asked, can you do that? Into chapter 39 we go, question in the opening verse. Knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Or canst thou mark when the hinds do cave? Job, do you know exactly those mountain goats? When are they going to cave and bring forth? Do you know? What about those animals in the wilderness that bring forth their young? Can you tell me about the gestation period and all the biology involved in it? Job, do you know? As Job now hears these questions about the animate kingdom and the animal world, verse number 2 asks it this way, Canst thou number the months that they fulfilled, or knowest thou the time when they bring forth? They bow themselves and they bring forth their young ones. They cast out their sorrow. You and I are still amazed, aren't we, at the process involved in birth. When a farmer knows that there's a cow about to give birth, he watches her, he's aware of the potential difficulties that may surround the process. He doesn't know the exact moment. He may be able to pinpoint it within a day or two or maybe even a week or so. God asked Job, Job, do you know about the goats of the mountain when they're going to bring forth? Doesn't that remind us that when it comes even to the issue of the animal kingdom bringing forth, God knows everything about it. We're reminded on one occasion in the New Testament, aren't we, that even the very hairs of our head are numbered. Matthew 10 verse 30. God knows everything, even down to the processes biologically that are going on inside your body and mine. The fascinating thing leads us to also note this. Mention is made of an interesting animal in verse 9. It's a unicorn. The more correct Hebrew translation seems to be a wild ox. And in essence, God asks Job, Job, does the wild ox serve you? Does he answer your bidding and does he do your service? Does he answer your call? Does he do the thing you command? We each understand that only with great effort can most animals be tamed. Oh, it's true, we can tame dogs and cats. But what about those more notable animals of the field like tigers and lions and bears? Can they be easily tamed? What about musk oxes and zebras and giraffes? Can you tame them? We understand that usually only with great effort, and even then, sometimes those animals do not behave in the way that they have been trained to do. Just recently, weren't we not in position on the news, if I remember, an individual who in fact was around this animal that had been trained and suddenly by instinct apparently it did something that was so very uncommon and injured one of the individuals that surrounded the matter. God asked Job, Job, does the wild ox respond to you? Can you train and can you tame it? Later in the chapter, he asked this, beginning in verse 10, Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow, or will he harrow the valleys with thee? Can you domesticate these wild animals and use them to plow a field? Again, Job surely would have had to answer no. 
Notice verse 12. Wilt thou believe him that he will bring home thy seed and gather it into thy barn? Can you use this animal, as wild as he at this point may be, to train him and convert him over to be that which would be useful in provision for thee? By now you can only imagine after these questions that Job surely must have begun to realize truly how great God was and that he had no business questioning him. He had no business lifting himself up to the point of believing that he could converse with God in such a way to even question what had gone on. Maybe that's a grand lesson for us that we shall revisit at the proper time in the lesson this evening. For now, as we come near the bottom of that slide, some elements of beauty again reappear in the inanimate world and also some things in the animate world too. What about the feathers of a peacock? I'm sure all of us have observed the remarkable beauty in the feathers of a peacock. And by the way, even the physics by which that happens has only been understood in the last hundred years or so. And yet as that peacock opens its feathers and we see the absolute grandeur of it, God asked Job a long time ago, Job, can you have done that? Could you have made it happen? Could you have designed the process by which that comes to pass? The feathers of a peacock. You'll notice even beyond that, mention is made in verses 13 to 17 about the other birds of the animal kingdom. The horse is mentioned in the verses that follow. The strength of a horse, the capability of its usage and utility to man. Finally, in verses 26 and following, as chapter 39 rolls to its conclusion, mention is made about these rather amazing questions. I'd ask you to read with me beginning in verse 26. Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom and stretch her wings toward the south? Doth the eagle mount up at thy command and make her nest on high? I would only pause to ask each of us to contemplate the meaning of that question God asked Job. Does the hawk fly by your wisdom? The flight of birds is still something science doesn't fully understand. We see geese that fly in a V-shape, and we know, at least now, that there's very good reason for that. It turns out that there is a remarkable efficiency to the overall flight pattern of the group when they fly that way. Did Job know that? Science today didn't know it until, oh, about 30 or 40 years ago. What about the flight of an eagle? Verse number 27. Doth the eagle mount up at your command? It would seem to be then the case that every time an eagle flies, it is because of the commandment and grandeur and provision of God. As we give thought to all of those things, it perhaps leads us to these lessons that we'll use to complete our lesson tonight. We notice that God wasn't finished in His questions for Job. Two more chapters yet to come, chapters 40 and 41. We shall turn our attention to them in our next lesson. But for tonight, might I invite you to reflect with me at least to these three lessons. First, I hope that we each, by the virtue of God's questions to Job, have been reminded of the absolutely amazing natural world in which we live. It's often easy, isn't it, in the hurriedness and the frenzied character of the day, to be so busy 
that we fail to appreciate what it is that's around us. We drive over a bridge and never stop to think about the waterway that's underneath it and how that God's in control of it. Or we drive along the roadway at night and perhaps never give thought to all those stars above us and how that our God made every one of them and that He not only made them but rather He upholds them moment by moment by the word of His power. Hebrews 1 verse 3 reminds us that He upholds all things by the word of His power. Those stars that are in orbit out there, they're not just there by accident or happenstance, and they don't remain that way either. They're there because of the laws of science, but God put those in place, and He upholds those laws moment by moment. The energy, the momentum, the character of them, that doesn't just occur by the laws of science, but rather because God upholds those laws of science and maintains every moment of every second with the nature of of the beauty about us. This world is truly a fascinating thing. May we take the time to appreciate from the beauty of the rose to the grandeur of what we see in the natural realm around us. Some verses that challenge us along that line would might be these. In Psalm 19 verse 1, the psalmist of the long ago said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the beauty showeth His handiwork thereof. The motion of the sun across the sky from morning until night. You and I can perhaps appreciate the beauty of a sunrise in the morning and a sunset in the afternoon. But isn't it amazing that happens every day? May we never get so accustomed to it that we fail to understand the marvel behind it. May we never see it so many times that we lose sight of just what is involved in the greatness of what God makes day by day. Have you stood at, the, at an ocean and looked at the vastness of all the water there? Our God made that. And He set it by way of bounds and everything about it is maintained and upheld by the order of His creation. When we look into the eyes of our dear loved one and we appreciate just how special that she or he may be, our God is such that that person's made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. All the beauty that is that person is maintained and a part of the grandeur of the creation of our God. Our world is truly a fascinating thing. And might we ask it this way, if our God could do this for this world, what must heaven be like? There is a place where there is no pain or sadness or sorrow. There is no death and there is no curse. Revelation 21 verses 4 through 8. Furthermore, all the sin that encumbers this world shall not be there. For Revelation 21, 27 reminds us that nothing defiling ever enters therein. If this world is this great, how much more ought heaven to be? In John 14, beginning in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Oh, we look forward to that occasion. When in that place we call heaven, we know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit shall all be there, and we shall be gathered with all the redeemed of all the ages, able to encircle the grandeur of the throne of God forevermore. All the toiling and the difficulties and oppressions of this life will have long since been left behind. 
may I submit that the thought of this natural world ought to just tempt us to think about the grandeur of that place. In Acts 14, verse 17, while Paul preached in, on the first missionary journey there in the city of Lystra, was it not to them that he said, God hath not left himself without witness? In other words, the physical creation about us is in fact a witness to God. Is it not true that the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God? Psalm 53, 1, Psalm 14, 1. And yet there are those in our world with the nerve, the audacity, and the foolishness to say that there is no God, or at least to call His existence into question. When in Romans 1, verse 20, He said, "...the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made." even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It shall be a rather momentous day when they stand in the presence of the one who they've doubted and the one who they thought didn't exist and try to give an answer for how they could have been foolish enough to close their eyes to all the creation about them. They will have no good answer. Perhaps a second lesson would be this one. These questions that we've studied tonight, at least have listed, they do challenge us to appreciate this. One by one, as God asked Job these questions, some of them involving inanimate things, some of them involving animate things, all the while they illustrated the power and the creative genius of the God of heaven. And ever since that time, it is to be noted that science has a desire to understand what God fashioned, the creation that He put forth, and the way that He upholds it. And science, when it's approached that way, is a marvelous field of profession. And we should encourage it. When science goes astray is when it starts to question this book. And when it starts to think that it knows more than God. And when it starts to think that it has better answers than God does. Time and again, scientists need to read Job chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41 and be reminded of the one who they're studying because he's the one that did all of this. He put the laws of physics and chemistry and biology and geology in place, and he's the one that upholds them moment by moment by the word of his power. It is true that in light of those things, we might make those comments at the top. As science helps us then see, we should help our children appreciate this kind of discovery of the natural world around us in all ways that science, when viewed rightly, is in harmony with the Bible, not in disagreement to it. But maybe that does bring us to the third lesson and the one that we'll use to close our study and our sermon time tonight. We so often in the lesson made note of those animals, didn't we? be it from the feathers of a peacock to the wild goats on the mountain that bring forth. There is something very interesting, though, about the way that God references those animals and the comments that He makes about them. I've tried to highlight it like this. This is one of the errors that science and biology has sometimes made to lift up the animal as if it's equal to a human being in one way or another. But yet God always made a clear distinction. Those animals were not made in the image and in the likeness of God in the same way that Adam and Eve were. Without question, God made them and He fashioned them and He provides for them and in fact, He does good things to them. 
But they are not immortal spirits in the same way that a human being is. Zechariah 12 verse 1 tells us that it's the God of heaven that formeth the spirit of man within him. He did not talk about snakes and dogs and cats and fish. It's in man that there is an immortal spirit. And thus there is a gigantic distinction between a human being and an animal. The gospel is thus for humans. They need to hear and obey it while there's opportunity and time. As we understand those matters, doesn't it lead us to say this? Even God made those distinctions, didn't He? I'd invite you to revisit the wording and I put in italics. Deprived her of wisdom. God was talking about an animal. An animal doesn't have the same kind of wisdom that a human being does. Neither hath He imparted to her understanding. Peacocks and hawks and eagles do not have the same degree of understanding you and I do. There is something different about them. We must appreciate that, that thought and make sure our children understand it. For though it's fine to study the animal kingdom and to have pets perhaps, they ought not be thought of in the same way a human being is, and they are not to be viewed in quite the same way. Human beings, you see, are made in the image and in the likeness of God. We are those that shall stand before the God of heaven and give answer for the deeds done in the body, Romans 2, 6. And in so doing, the words of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 must ring in our ears. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Tonight's lesson in the opening two chapters of chapters 38 and 39 have presented to us a series of questions and many have been the number of them. All the while, though, the lesson has been clear. Job wasn't thinking rightly when he honestly thought that he was ready to dialogue with God and question Him. You and I may be called upon to face difficulties in life too and when so, may we never question God the way Job did. May we never depart from our faithfulness, of course, but may we always understand that our God always does what's right, Genesis 18.25, and He always oversees things in perfectly the right way. Our faith needs to be strong. Our endurance needs to be great. Our patience needs to be mighty. The long-suffering of our God is salvation, 2 Peter 3.15. Tonight are you washed in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7.14 reminds us that that is the end blessedness of those who shall be around the throne of God forevermore. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? And are you living faithfully until death? If that's not the case of your life, why not tonight? The baptismal waters are ready. We'd be honored to assist in your obedience to the blessed call of the gospel. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of the sins in your life, Luke 13, 3. Confess His name as the Son of God, Acts 8, 37. Be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, 38. And at that point, live hand in hand with Him throughout life. If you have begun that walk with Him, but at this point, maybe you've begun to question God. Maybe in one way or another you have shaken your fist that things with Him are not right and He has done you wrong. You need to repent of that for you've been mistaken. God, you see, has opened the doors of heaven and is ready to pour 
multitude of blessings upon you and me. Spiritually, he sent his son to take your place at the cross, to pay the price for your sins and mine. If you need to come before him tonight, perhaps repenting of sins that you've committed and willing to ask for prayers of brethren, under the banner of Acts 8 verse 20, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. And if we could do that this very night, Brother Jeff has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could be of assistance to you, wouldn't you let us know in the way we can do that while together we stand and while we sing.